0: The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by TheFlyCrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And Wait For It Films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.TheWaitCreativeCo.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company, blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com You are
1: listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Yeah, well, every year I, I used to follow the weather in June, July as kind of a velocity barrier summer steelhead fanatic, you know, because that's a, it's almost like a different strain of steelhead once you start to hit the island and the, and the north and the central coast because everything becomes so steep. It's not fish going, uh, you know, 1,000 kilometers in order to achieve their spawning grounds. It's a velocity barrier thing and a temperature thing. So they have to achieve a velocity barrier while the water's there as it melts off in the early spring. And they're a different type of fish altogether, right? Hmm. compared to the fish that just need to go the long distance. So in BC, I mean, I would say that you have three different steelheads that are summer steelhead. You have long-distance runners, that fish that need to do the distance, right, which are, you know, your Thompson River fish and your, uh, you know, Skeena fish and and big river fish. Then you have your velocity barrier fish, which I'm talking about, that need to achieve their small streams. They just need to achieve the barrier early enough with, with the no gonad development, with no eggs in their belly, skinny. And they need to get up there and they need to sit in the upper watershed and feed in order to winter over mm-hmm. and spawn the next spring. And then you have fish in the, that are similar where you have to achieve... a. a, a it's not a barrier, it's a, a temperature barrier. And that starts in the central coast here. That's what we're starting to look into is that there's these... It's these fish that... they when you're when you're pulling water straight off of ice fields they have a very small window when they can achieve even the even some globes just due to temperature hmm. so these fish need to come to the system at the warmest time at the warmest time of year which is not the warmest year right. right they need to come in after fresh it because that's when things kind of slow down and the temperatures in the river rise when it's fresh it is just coming straight off the ice field And then they need to achieve those barriers. And these populations are super small.
0: The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on the Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%.
2: Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us today. And we're going to do what we always love to do. And uh, we've made this kind of our our mission Find people passionate in the fly fishing space, every nook and cranny, and we're going. Uh, we're going to uh, well, a quieter part of British Columbia, Canada. Uh, we're going to head up the west coast to uh, the Powell River area. Uh, really stoked to have on the podcast, Pat Demeester. Pat is uh, well, he's an avid farmer, fly fisher, um, conservationist. I would call him. And man, this man knows a lot about the fly fishing space. Hey, Pat, thanks for coming on the show today, man. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, man.
2: It's my pleasure. So let's, let's start with your, your journey. I know it's, uh, it's, it's been a tumultuous one to say the least by the sounds of it and, but, um, you're doing some pretty exciting things in, in and around the Powell river area. Why don't we start with your fly fishing journey? Like where did fly fishing first kind of appear on the stage for you?
1: Well, uh, I grew up in, uh, Southern Ontario in the tobacco country region. So, uh, Lake Erie and, uh, there, uh, you, you know, you're fishing for a lot of coarse fish, uh, as kids with, uh, you know, bobbers and worms like everybody else. That's the base and, and working up to, uh, fly fishing in the backyard. Uh, I got my first fly rod actually after, uh, getting some VHS videos, uh, one memorable one was Jim video T- I had on VHS and uh, I got it at a, at, at a uh, swap there and I, I when I went home, I just couldn't I couldn't help it. My mom got me a fly rod within uh, a month or two and I was in the backyard practicing. So I, I fished uh, you know the, the kind of the, uh, the Southern Ontario, Lake Erie, uh, Lake Ontario watersheds uh, as a kid. Uh, and once I, once I had kind of, once I had caught some rainbows and, and brook trout over the bass and you know, yeah pike muskie you know the the coarse fish that are available uh, in the region there I just I caught my first what we called steelhead in mm-hmm. the Great Lakes uh, which were genetics that were moved over there so large adfluvial fish moving into the systems in huge numbers back in the early 90s you know uh it's it's funny you look at some of the historic numbers for a river on the coast here you know that's three or four kilometers from the coast uh long with you know you historically maybe get uh you know 1500 or 800 fish uh, at the time because of the uh, you know the the way that the, the availability of spawning grounds in those rivers those genetics took off, and those rainbows in the Great Lakes were in huge numbers. I think we got about 12,000 fish. So it was like a chum run here wow. of rainbows there in the 90s.
2: Huh. And
1: uh, so when, you know, as an obsessed kind of youth with fly fishing and, the, uh, and, and and what we called steelhead then, I just uh, I started to do some research. Back then, there was no Google. There's there. no internet
2: there.
1: He had, had to go to the library, you know, looked it, it up in the card index, and I looked up Steelhead, and it actually led me to a bunch of books, Hag Brown being one of them, right. looking up Summer Steelhead, and, and and Steelhead on the West Coast led me to a couple of books where I became enthused with the West Coast at a very young age,
2: hmm. you know. So, so how, how old were you when you moved the... To- made the move out west
1: i hitchhiked across the trans canada with uh with some books and some vinyl records (laughs) and a backpack and and some rods uh the first uh the first go i was 15 wow and uh made it to vancouver and uh and i actually uh was in east vancouver and headed up to uh the to campbell river i lived on the Quinsom in a tent for a winter and uh fished uh the the Quinsam run that i'd read about in in a bunch of books and and you know once you start to read into mr brown's writings it leads mm-hmm. you to the east you know to the east coast of the island and and the watersheds there and uh, at the time i think in the 90s it was it was actually in a complete collapse but from what i was experiencing it was you know some of the most wondrous fishing of my life
2: yeah, it's pretty cool how many people uh, Roderick Haig browns books have, have influenced. I, I, remember, I can remember reading those as a kid, and they just really stuck with me. If you had to kind of look at, obviously, it sounds like you're, you know, highly influenced by Haig brown But as far as people you've met along the way, or maybe other authors or guides, who's kind of um, helped you, mentored you along the way when it comes to fly fishing?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, as a, as a youth, I I I, I got to look to the literary, like, authors that kind of, like, influenced me because a lot of my time was spent just, you know, reading and flipping through books that I could find on the subject. I mean, obviously, you know, on the West Coast here at the time, there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, right away, Trey Coombs... Uh, you know, uh, reading Trey Coombs books, uh, Art Lindgren's writings at the time and and, and going forward here, uh, looking into, uh, you know, uh, Barry Thornton's Steelhead was always a classic with me, just like because I was so enthused with the saltwater ad fluvial steelhead, what was a real steelhead, mm. in my opinion, coming to the West Coast, uh, really kind of always took my intrigue and these were the writings of the people that were kind of here and and held the history of sergemoney and and uh you know the history of fly fishing uh on Vancouver Island uh you know is is a lengthy one
2: yeah are you are you are sure. you kind of a self-taught guy like have you learned a lot you know from reading and doing rather than maybe having somebody instruct
1: uh, I definitely put my time in uh, as a solo fisherman, I would say. I'm a self-taught uh, physically, definitely did a lot of reading. Uh, I had some mentors along the way. Um, you know, growing up uh, in, a, in a single mom household with a bunch of brothers and sisters, uh, you know, Bill Gable in Simcoe, Ontario was a man who, uh, as a youth, uh, we didn't fly fish, but uh, that man would take me out uh, a- any day of the week. We would be out fishing. He would drive and spend gas money to drive, you know, dudes all over. I mean, there was a whole crew of us this guy would take all over southern Ontario. Mm-hmm. And we would fish, and he taught us so much and definitely held that passion. And, uh, you know, he still does that today uh, as an elderly man in 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 Simcoe, Ontario. And I got to give it out to him because I mean, it's just, there's so many youth that, uh, that got it, you know, definitely got a start there. And then coming out to the West coast, you know, um, one of my steelhead mentors from Tuxedo, Bill Reeves, who was a early steelhead society member and, uh, and, you know, uh, a fly tire and passionate Thompson river steelhead fisherman in Vancouver Island steelhead fisherman. um, definitely uh you know had a had a huge impact on uh on on my uh vancouver island exploration always pushing you know those, those guys you just when you got to do it when you're young and that's what he always told me when you got the knees you got the hips when you can do the canyons yeah. when you can get in there and do, it and do the exploration get in there and, and look for fish and uh you know the the stories of those guys rising fish to dry flies back in the day and exploring those places is what drove us down into those places and checking all of those, you know, watersheds out piece by piece. And I mean that's what that's what it, it takes when you're young because when you're older and you can't do it, you can only remember, right? Yeah. And uh that that's that's an important part of passing the torch, I think, in the sport and doing it in a in a proper way for sure.
2: That's something you I've know. thought about a lot lately. It's funny you said that. I was thinking, you know, when 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 I was younger, we used to hit like two, three lakes in a day. If one lake wasn't good, we'd just go another, you know, 20 minutes down the road and hike into another lake and do it all over again. I'm like, I've got to reload that equipment. Forget it. It's like, you know, as you get older, those things become more challenging. So, hey, before I, we dig into your story, uh, I want to get to know your day-to-day. You ready for a few questions designed to get a feel for your neck of the woods? Sure. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, you're you're on your way to the water. Uh, in your case, you may or may not be driving. I don't know, but if you're driving in your truck, what's playing on the stereo?
1: Well, uh, usually the Grateful Dead, uh, the Violent Femmes. Wow. Um, if you're asking bands, you know, maybe the radio, uh, you know. I'm I'm definitely a, a big reggae fan.
2: Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, Sounds that's... pretty pretty diverse over there. Um, talk to me. Uh, let Let's gear this towards steelheading because I know it's your it's your number one. Um, what's a go to fly pattern in your neck of the woods for steelies when you're when you're hitting the uh, the moving water?
1: Well, I think given the opportunity I, I mean that's it's a if you're asking summer runs because that's kind of been my focus as i get older you know i just can't plug through the the winters as much as i used to it, uh, the uh you know i always start with uh start with a dry fly and uh that's mm. going to be a steelhead bee for me for the last uh, decade wow for
2: sure Awesome. I had no idea that they were that, uh, uh, you know, kind of into taking drives. I mean, I know, I know it's done. I didn't, but that's your kind of your go-to. Sounds like, huh?
1: My go-to would be just like Mr. Brown and up upca- upstream casted
2: Steelhead B. If you can take them that way, well, wow.
1: that's the way.
2: Love it. Okay, so let's talk you're not on the river on this given day. So where do you go to get your fix? Where do you go to get your fill? So if you're like, um, I know I'm not fishing, but I want to talk fishing. Um, is it social media? Is it a pub locally? Where do you go?
1: It'd be social media. You know, I'm not a real, uh, I could, I could tell you this. I could honestly count the emails that I've sent in my life on one hand. Wow. I, uh, I, I have, uh, I am not a big tech guy, except I uh, got on Facebook early. It's very easy for me. Uh, I don't do any other social media. And I, I did try YouTube for a while. Uh, back in the day, I had the lone square tailor taking some videos and, and tried to kind of, you know, like move into social media. But it's really never really it's not my thing. Yeah. Uh, but Facebook is very easy for me. It's from my phone. Uh, I can take my daily pictures and kind of upload it. So, uh, on Facebook, I'm Pat Pat Demeester and that's, that's pretty much my, uh, go to, uh, daily download of bugs, mm-hmm. flies, fish, history of fishing in BC. You know, I, I kind of try and diversify my posts into stuff that's interesting just to like you know, start conversations because that's how you learn, you know, even debate is how you learn, right. If people don't agree, because as long as you can have a good discussion, I think that's a, it's always a positive thing.
2: Yeah. And there's a few good forums for that, that I know you frequent. I see you on a lot of different sites though, like not just in Canada, like all over the place. Um, so I, I know you're out there and, uh, I just chatting before we got on this call, uh, Pat and myself were having a quick wag kind of about the show and stuff. And I'm just like going, man, this guy knows a lot, uh, when it comes to the fly fishing space. And we're going to dig into that in just a sec. Um, so we know your favorite place. We, you got social media going there. What about sports teams? Um, for some reason you don't strike me as a sports follower. I don't know why. Probably because well, you're probably not in front of the TV very often, but talk to me. Is there a sports team you nope. follow? No.
1: No. I mean, I you know, I got uh, I have some good friends next door here, and I go uh, I try and watch a couple innings of the Jays games with them daily. Uh, two older gentlemen that live across the street that I hang out with, and uh, and I usually catch the you know seventh an eighth with them or, or the end of the game. And, uh, I, and that's kind of a little bit of a daily routine for me, which I've really enjoyed, but, um, I'm not a sports guy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I love my hockey of course, but you know, I just, uh, and go Canucks, but I just, you know, I'm not really a big, big sports guy all around.
2: If you look back at your fishing kind of life, where you're at today and you look back and you go, why do I do this? Why do I spend all this time talking, fly fishing, chasing fins, talking to biologists? What does it do for you?
1: Um, you know, in the end, I think, uh, you know, I've had some, I've had a couple of close calls recently and I just, I feel like uh, in the end people want to be remembered, right? And there's different ways to be written down in history or do things. And I think the difference I've made in my personal community, the regulations that I've helped change uh, in the past, which, you know, goes back almost going back almost 20 years now uh, to uh, the stuff in the middle to the stuff that we're changing now within the, you know, community and within the region to protect the species that are here so that we don't necessarily have to have stocked fish or or you know hatchery influence keep wild fisheries where where people can take part mm-hmm. i think that's an important thing so uh we have to as populations grow uh in the region which is happening in in my town here and on the entire coast uh, you know and, and all of BC um i think it's important that Update regulations to suit the the populations of fish and the impacts that population growth is going to have on them. So, you know, I just feel like uh, that's the legacy that I that I that I'm going to leave here. And when I go, is that uh, you know we we we've made some positive influence. It's about the fish. It's yeah. about their populations, and it's about sustaining that the historic fishery here in BC. I mean, that's what we're famous for. Yeah. you know there's there's a multitude of fisheries here, and if we take care of them, they produce tourist dollars for decades to come.
2: yeah, well said. So listen, I know you spend a lot of time farming these days. Let's talk jobs kind of careers to this to this point. What's the best gig you've had like are you are you doing it now?
1: Well, yeah, I mean if we can. There's monetary, and then there's you know, what you want to do, right? I mean, the the uh, there's been a couple of booms here and there, but uh, I think uh, farming and growing food was one of uh, one of the best things that we did for for a decade here in the region, and uh, working on sustainable food production, you know collection of seeds and open pollinated seeds and working with different seed companies throughout bc and and being able to produce just food locally in these isolated communities we've always felt is a super important aspect to our community hmm. so we've put a lot of time in as a couple of me and my wife tear and uh over the last while and and uh you know, the kids are growing, they're out of the house, we're, we're uh, on our own and, uh, you know, moving back into some of the fishery and, uh, you know, we're producing some food here on the property, that's all. I think it's an important aspect in today, you know, you see what's happening, everybody does with, you know, rising gas prices and, and uh, you know, we've always been not lawn people. Garden people, right? So, yeah, uh, I spend a good chunk of my day growing food, and I always make sure that I take a few moments for myself to align somewhere that uh, you've probably seen some of my social media, as you said, where you know, sometimes it's I'm out there chasing, you know, trophy wild fish, and sometimes I'm fishing the pond, and sometimes I'm fishing beaver pond, you know, cutthroat, and or on the ocean. And sometimes it's just about the bugs you find along the way, right? And what's yeah. hatching, and why you're not catching fish, right?
2: So if you go out the door because you're joining us today from from the farm, what, what what kind of plants are you growing these days for for food? Just out of curiosity.
1: Um. Well, right now we've been. Uh, I got a lot of potatoes in for this winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I focus on a lot of winter squash. So uh, one of our favorites, butternut. I find they keep the best. We will put over a hundred squash away for the winter, wow. just to be able to to, to use and have uh, and and use as gifts because they keep so well. Yeah. So, uh, and they grow kind of through brambles. If you have those places on your property where you can just put a little garden along the edge of your lawn, and and you have some bramble, you know, plant a whole whack of them, the hmm. seed keep and then you have these squash all winter that you can you know that you can use and you know stuff i mean any kind of keeper food that you know so greens right now is the main focus for us but uh yeah moving we're still cold how are you guys doing there
2: uh it's it's been a cold spring but uh like my kales uh, anything that likes it cool is doing great like beets are good it's actually like be a good year for peas you know it's been wet it's been cool usually gets too hot here but um no it's been good man uh no complaints yet I don't, I don't grow a lot of different grapes. grapes, Well, we're a little late. We're probably two to three weeks behind the last few years. And that's the same with all the soft fruits, the cherries, um, peaches, everything, everything's going to be late. But, um, yeah, (laughs) I think we're not alone in that. It's been a, it's been an unusual, unusually cool year, at least in our, in our province for sure. Um, so (laughs) i'm getting a little confused here i'm getting off track um without getting too deep i just i just want you to share what you're comfortable with your story when you came out here because you you said something right off the top you said i like basically left home at 14 or 15 i'm thinking in my head like that's pretty young to be going somewhere alone so how did you kind of get from ontario to where you're at today i know that's probably a very long answer but um Give us your your thoughts on that journey.
1: Well, I was raised in a pretty strict religious household, and uh, it just wasn't something that I agreed with. And uh, you know, I just moved on. Uh, I just felt like uh, I had a I felt like I had a destiny. You know, I think most youth that are young have you know have that like you know, super pushed to go out there and, and forge their own way. And, and I did, I wanted to go to the other side of the country. My grandparents came, uh, during war times to, uh, St. Thomas and Southern Ontario and worked in tobacco and strawberries and, you know, to come in and, and, and come to the country and, and, uh, on my one side and, and, uh, you know uh i just feel like uh you know it's kind of in the blood right it's uh, you know agriculture's a thing you know uh, coast to coast
2: yeah yeah fair um when you're not fishing what are you usually doing working on the farm for the most part
1: yeah well we have um we have a small piece here uh, that we're developing right now we're just uh we're just about to pour a foundation me and my wife are building a small cottage, trying to go from the large farming life to uh downsizing to uh, a very simple life uh, we're just going to uh, focus on the new guiding company uh spending less time uh, uh working and more time uh with our dogs and uh and working on the company and and just uh yeah, uh, grow more food. I mean, mm-hmm. every person works a certain amount of days for, for their food budget, right? If you just take that day off and spend it in the garden, I think everybody would be just a little healthier, right?
2: <laughs> I like it. That's a good quote.
1: That, that fifth day, you know, like just take that day and spend it in the garden. You're, you're going to benefit from having your hands in the dirt.
2: What's the name of the guiding company?
1: Uh. I'm I I am uh, just uh, launching uh, Cutthroat Country Outfitters. Uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, I already kind of booked up through till August uh, with the pouring of our foundation and the building of the house and the few trips that I have booked. But uh, September through October is a pretty good season for us. For um, you know. Postal cutthroat that are ad fluvial that live in the lakes, feed on cutthroat and a small kokanee small cutthroat and small stickleback Um, there's uh, you know a a population here of uh, rainbows that uh, are available that that get large in a few of the watersheds but I focus on the uh, anadromous sea run cutthroat here throughout the fall Um, you know there's a bunch of uh, ocean populations that only use the fresh water for a very small portion of time small stream you know cutthroat Uh, some of those sea run cutthroat live in the ocean for you know uh, 10 months a year and only use the creek for small portions of time right in the estuary and then sometimes as little as even a few days in the stream to reproduce hmm. and uh, and then in some of the larger rivers you know down towards the lower mainland and the, and, and, uh, and the olympic peninsula you have populations that spend huge amounts of time in the fresh water and only use the brackish or salt water for small portions of time And I think as the coast mountains where we are start to push towards the coast, you have more of these populations that are very elusive throughout the summer
2: Hmm.
1: and then become available for short periods of time. And uh, that's, that's been uh, a couple of the focuses for us through the fall over the winter. I think one of our bonuses is that um, where you are and all of our interior family, uh, in the fly fishing community in, in, in BC are frozen up throughout the winter. Yeah. So uh, throughout the winter, you know, the coast, some of the coastal lakes are, are, are open, but um, you know, we're uh, focusing on a couple of, uh, you know, ad fluvial coastal cutthroat populations, um, you know, February, March, and April uh, when mm-hmm. some of you guys are still locked up. It'd be, it'd yep. be uh, nice to host a few uh, people when the water's still hard out there, sure.
2: Yeah, well, that's, and that's the reality where I'm at is, I mean, even just now, can you get up top, really, because a lot of those lakes have been locked up, and the water temperature's still pretty cold. I was fishing the lake the other day, it was 48, and, uh, you know, there's, there's some bugs popping, but it wasn't crazy, so yeah it's uh and that's what I love about the island the coast kind of where you're at um those season it's basically twelve months a year for you is it not
1: yeah we get a few we get a few lockups for sure it's all uh you know the the lakes on the coast are very uh lack they lack in nutrient right
2: right, right.
1: so it's uh i think that's the the big difference between coastal populations and interior populations have, has always been that, you know, the the lakes in the interior are very rich, but it's a very short feeding period. Yeah. So, you know, you're having this this amazing fishing for a very short period of time to produce these fish. And then the coastal populations, I mean, a lot of them over their evolutionary, you know, time, they've just, they use the ocean. Right. They use the ocean for feeding. I mean, a lot of the populations we focus on uh, are using the the ocean for their base and only using these short, steep, you know, uh, coast mountain watersheds for reproduction. So they're only there for a very short period of time to to, to reproduce and then leave. Right. Mm-hmm. That goes for both the run cutthroat, the the sea run bull trout. And any uh, steelhead populations that are in the,
2: the watersheds, right? Yeah, well said. Um, I, I want to ask you in your time of fly fishing your way around the province, or mostly in you know the coast, or even back in Ontario. Um, anything weird happen to you in your time on the water that comes to mind? Anything that kind of makes you go, man, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> I have a feeling there might be a few.
1: It's probably like a book, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> let's Yeah. Well, let's let's start with one that comes to mind, anything.
1: Oh man, I mean the probably the most horror, horrific one would be uh, definitely uh, a body in the Niagara in the whirlpool. Oh boy. Uh fishing pool as as a young teen. Yeah. That was uh that was you know, and uh they were they were coming down to recover but it was there was a body in the, oh, in the world down in the niagara huh. um but, you know the nature i think is what grasps me the most i mean I, I, you know once i came out here i just the deeper that you go the more addicting it becomes and uh you know to be standing in a river where you have uh, a grizzly bear walking, you know, up, this, up the side of the river on the other side of you, or you have bull elk coming out into the river and, and bugling chest deep in the water, or whether it's just the birds, because that's your thing and you're so enthralled with the different species of birds that are flying around you from eagles to down to my, one of my favourites, the dipper, that's, you know... You know, bouncing rock to rock and eating bugs and and caddises off the rocks, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's all it's all uh, in the eyes of the beholder. And for me, I just try to behold it all. I mean, I just I'm so enthralled with everything from the largest uh, of steelhead that I catch down to the little swamp cutthroat. You know, they're all beautiful and they all have different likeness trees. And I think that's where I focused most of my Uh, energy in my life is just trying to understand i think given a different uh path in my life i probably would have been uh, a, a biologist i work with some of the local you know bc biologists out of the province and and out of the lower mainland i i consult on a lot of different fisheries in our region um but uh you know i probably would have gone that way but at the same time like many of them say, uh, I I wouldn't have the education that I do that they lack because they have the desk knowledge, but I have the field knowledge because I grew up with the fish, and uh, there's an understanding to being on the watershed and being there with the timing. I think that's you just can't learn in a textbook. Each watershed is unique, and, and I think that's the that's the uh, that's the oddity and beauty beauty of the coast is that each watershed. Is a design of its own, geologically, and it's selected different species to be there and reach different reaches of those, you know, those tributaries of those rivers, right? And and it hold, some some hold different species, and the neighboring one won't, and it's all timing, you know. One comes from a glacier, and it's too cold to achieve a, a certain velocity barrier, and there will be no steelhead in that river. And the next one over will have a run of fifty. The one down the way will have 1,200. It's all selected completely by its environment, and the melting snow. And we all complain about this year, but I think this year is going to be beautiful, just because of the amount of snowpack. I think we're all going to suffer less fire smoke. Yeah. I think we're going to see a great snowpack this year. It happened. It's there, and it's melting slowly. Yeah. So I think we're going to have a great August. You know.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a good good uh way of looking at it because I, I agree 100 i think the we've rushed to heat up the last few years obviously had the heat dome last year that was a, a rare kind of occurrence but you're right this this feels this feels i don't want to say more normal but it definitely feels like uh it has a better feeling going into summer not and you know not having everything tinder dry right
1: yeah well every year i i used to follow the weather in June, July, as kind of a velocity barrier. Summer steelhead fanatic, you know, because that's a, it's almost like a different strain of steelhead once you start to hit the island and the and the north and the central coast, because everything becomes so steep. It's not a distance thing. It's not fish going, uh, you know, thousand kilometers in order to achieve their spawning grounds. It's a velocity barrier thing and a temperature thing, so they have to achieve a velocity barrier while the water's there as it melts off in the early spring. And they're a different type of fish altogether, right,
2: Hmm. compared
1: to the fish that just need to go the long distance. So in BC, I mean, I would say that you have three different steelheads that are summer steelhead. You have long-distance runners that fish that need to do the distance, right, which are, you know, your Thompson River fish and your uh, you know, Skeena fish and, and big river fish. Then you have your velocity barrier fish, which I'm talking about, that need to achieve... They're small streams. They just need to achieve the barrier early enough with, with the no gonad development, with no eggs in their belly, skinny. And they need to get up there and they need to sit in the upper watershed and feed in order to winter over mm-hmm. and spawn the next spring. And then you have fish in the, that are similar where you have to achieve... it's not a barrier, it's a a temperature barrier. And that starts in the central coast here. That's what we're starting to look into is that there's these, it's these fish that they, when you're, when you're pulling water straight off of ice fields, they have a very small window when they can achieve even the, even some slopes just due to temperature. Hmm. So these fish need to come to the system at the warmest time, at the warmest time of year, which is not, the warmest year right. right they need to come in after fresh it because that's when things kind of slow down and the temperatures in the river rise when it's fresh it it's just coming straight off the ice field and then they need to achieve those barriers and these populations are super small right
2: yeah that's uh i've never heard it verbalized that way it makes a lot of sense huh? um well, let's let's talk Steelhead. What's the end game for you? What would you like to see? Like, I know you're working hard to to. Uh, you've made some changes to some some. I I understand some regulations maybe in your guys' neck of the woods, but what's the end game with fishing for you? Or is it just kind of part of your DNA at this point?
1: Uh, like I said, I think uh you know leaving it better than when we found it. I think is a is a key component to to whatever every kind of fishermen should achieve uh taking care of their fishery that all just kind of works in hand in hand with uh you know respecting your fishery respecting the fish that aren't going to be harvested you know harvesting responsibly when when you can and uh and and i'm not a strict catch and release guy i'd like to see you know catch catch and release fisheries where uh fish are sensitive and populations are sensitive but i think there's lots of places i mean you know in a lot of regions lakes are 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 are, are food fisheries for local communities and i think that that's important and it needs to be promoted and and uh, and, yeah. and and funded properly um you know but in the end with steelhead uh i think steelhead's a tough one because i'm a big believer that uh one of the main problems with steelhead is is happening out at sea. I mean for me, anadromous rainbows are being harvested. That's, a, that's my my research and my guts and, and everything that I've done over 20 years tells me that uh, you know there's a, there's an unknown and that is that there's a, there's a lot of commercial fisheries from from countries around the world and the Pacific pasture, and we have no idea what they're harvesting. I think that Canada and the U.S. have a a relationship. I think we share a lot of numbers. I think there's an understanding. I think there's there's definitely friction, and I think there's places where things aren't aren't on the up and up. But I think outside of that, a boundary between you know Alaska and Canada, I think there's fish that are being harvested that are just. If you look at, I had a discussion the other day with a, a a steelhead biologist here in Region Two. And we've talked about density uh, in, in the rivers of smolts. So when you have par and smolt densities that are kind of on par, not to be funny, but if they're on par with, with what's happening historically, and then those fish are going to see, the environment isn't what it was. Logging has a massive impact. The water flow and temperatures having a massive impact. Yes, there's no disagreement that we have, you know, fifteen things that are affecting the and populations that are all on the coast. But I think uh, you know, focusing on ocean survival—that's just not. It's like a term that they throw around, kind of just to like describe what's unknown, right? We have we have the fish going to sea, and they're not coming back. Right. And I think they're bycatch. I think a huge portion are bycatch. And I don't think there's much we can do for steelhead as long as things kind of continue the way they are. When you look at what's really interesting is if you look at the southern populations in California and Oregon, they kind of circulate out over the coast and go out towards the border of blue water and green water. And they feed. They have their own cycle feeding, Right. When you start to get north of the Columbia River, the fish migrate north up over Vancouver Island and around just like kind of salmon and go out to the Pacific pasture and feed. Every f- population all the way down through Washington is hurting. And and I, it's because those fish go to almost Russia. I mean, there's not much we can do to protect the fish once they're in outside of our waters, right? And they're a migratory fish, and I think they're just getting caught up in massive world fisheries that we, we're we just not aware that what's being taken, right? Hmm. And when you look at those populations, they're still killing wild fish down in Oregon, right? Because the populations can still sustain a harvest is right. what they're saying, hmm. right? Because their fish don't leave. They just kind of go out in front of Oregon and California and Washington and then return back to their rivers.
2: Right. Hmm. So let's keep talking steelhead a little bit because, I mean, I love fishing for rainbows, and I understand uh, they are obviously in some way, shape, or form related, but uh, the DNA of a steelhead uh, is a little different, is it not? Like, I mean, I hear, them, I hear people trying to compare rainbows or, like you say, uh, maybe some Great Lakes uh, fish to come back, but when you start comparing that, to West Coast, and I've had, believe me, I I've, I've, I've say fish on the Skeena system. We're talking; it's a different animal, is it not? Well,
1: I gotta say, I'm pretty enthused with the with the rainbow trout. You know, they're a pretty amazing and adaptable uh, species, and one of the only true trout, right? I'd say the king of the true trout. I mean, as much as, uh all fish actually came from a very cutthroat trout. Actually, or all, all, all salmon, all Pacific salmonoid. Right? So you have this cutthroat type fish that produced all the Pacific salmon, rainbow trout, golden trout, really? cutthroat trout, and that was like twenty-five million years ago, right? So, hmm. uh, rainbow trout I think I've been one of the most stocked and kind of the king of the true trout. But I think what's coming to light through the new scale sampling uh, and the DNA testing and the things that are happening now uh, is that, I mean, it's, it kind of backs up what I've always said, is that, I mean, steelhead is a term for an anadromous uh, an rainbow trout. So a rainbow trout that is born in a river and... Returns to the ocean, lives a a life history in the ocean, and returns to fresh water to spawn. Mm -hmm. And within the watershed that they come from, they are related to the resident fish and the ad fluvial fish that are in the lakes that attach through the tributaries because they all evolved at a certain point to come from the ocean into that watershed they banked basically banked some saltwater genetics they became resident fish and then they moved as far as they could through over time as log jams moved and pools and mm-hmm. canyons were formed over thousands of years into the upper watershed of each watershed individually into the lakes so the ad fluvial fish that live in a lake at the top of a, of a watershed are going to be related to the steelhead that live, that go to the ocean. They're all one family. Mm -hmm. And this is what's, this is what's now becoming understood is that they're, they're all one genetic family. They just live different life histories. They have just a slight different coding, but they also all interbreed and spawn. And if they don't interbreed and spawn, there's still a certain percentage genetically that stray so when you have a pure steelhead strain Mm -hmm. that steelhead strain coming from the ocean with no access to any resident or ad fluvial fish in a watershed will spawn and then a certain amount of those fish will always become resident fish living within the system Hmm. as a banking genetics in Ah. case there's a catastrophe in the ocean or a catastrophe in the river there's always a bank of genetics so that's why they move to the top of a system and we know rainbows and and char are two of the species that can move on the coast to the very top of a watershed if you look at all the data and all the historical uh you know biologists walking through watersheds in in the central coast bull, bull trout dollies and rainbows can move the furthest into a system over time so they're all one family per system is what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. and the the difference between like a chum watershed to watershed to watershed along the coast is very plastic it's very moldable they're all the same they're all the same family there's a huge straying and there's a huge amount of numbers and there's a huge intermingling of the fry as they go out in the first season so uh all of the rivers, if you just took DNA samples from everything, are fairly similar unless you have a very unique watershed. Right. And then when you come to, like, uh, Chinook are very much similar in in a lot of places, but you'll have different runs of Chinook. You know, you'll have a white Chinook or a, a you know. But when it comes to steelhead and coho, they, uh, as two species and char, they go to the very top of the watershed and 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 they become very unique so you have your summer steelhead in the top your your winter runs in the middle and your stop and drop fish that come in sexually mature in april and may spawn generally in the lower portion of the river hmm. but but each river is unique to its own genetic is what i'm trying yeah. to get at
2: yeah they
1: with steelhead they're not related to the next river over as close as the different species of salmon. So hmm. when you take a, a a steelhead genetic from California, like they did in the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. and they moved it over what in hundred over 120 years ago or like longer. Like it, it was I mean it's been there a long time. Right. But they took an, they took they took a genetic from one system. So they took that strain of rainbow from that one watershed in California and they moved it over to the Great Lakes. They moved a rainbow trout genetic over there. It It's not a steelhead because it doesn't go to the ocean. It's an ad fluvial rainbow that lives in a lake. And it has a similar life history, but it's not the same. And the rainbow trout that bec- that would basically migrate through and become different life histories it's all about life histories. so you're going to have rainbow trout in the great lakes that have become resident fish from those genetics you're going to have fish that are still living in the great lakes without the stalking programs that are happening in the great lakes you can't really tell the migratory pattern you need to move more to like jurassic lake hmm. or you need to move more towards the bow river in calgary alberta because these are steelhead genetics that were moved from the West Coast to different places with different life histories. So now you have the rainbows that are in the Bow River are actually steelhead genetics that were brought from the West Coast. But they are, they are a, a resident rainbow, or they are an ad fluvial, or no, they're a fluvial rainbow, which means they live in a river and spawn up another creek. So those river, they live in the river all the time. They don't live in a lake. The, the Bow River fish are world-renowned rainbow trout fishery, but those are steelhead genetics that were put in the Bow River at one point. Jurassic Lake is the same way. They were steelhead genetics that were brought to Jurassic Lake, yeah. introduced, and now they're an ad fluvial rainbow. We don't call either one of those huh. I, life histories.
2: I got to ask you a selfish question because... Uh... I fished the Smilkameen River a lot, and there's um there are a few stalkers in there, but for the most part, it's wild fish, and I yeah. swear to God, every time I catch one of those, I know it's this, I see the kind of the forefathers of the fish, and you know they look like a steelhead to me, and ever since they dammed up that river, which I know they're talking about working on something right now, actually, as we speak, but um basically on the state side uh there's a dam that those fish can't pass through but i know there's still steelhead get to the bottom of that dam so it only makes sense that the rest of the fish in that system are genetically related but i I, where i'm going with that is that i mean is that do you know anything about that system
1: thousand percent that's exactly it i mean you can have uh You can, that's already been proven down in Washington state. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure uh, more than a few of us have seen that documentary. Uh, I think it's, is it rising from the ashes? Is that the, and it's, and it's, you know, they, they basically, that's, they remove a dam. You have the, uh, you have the, uh, the, the return of the genetics in the top of the river down into the ocean and it's locked up there. I have several systems here. We are damned. I mean, I there's I'm sure that somewhere there's the rainbow trout genetic is still there to produce uh to produce a steelhead if hmm. it was to go back to the sea, right? Because it would become a different life history and, and right. the coding is still there. I mean, that's the like, you know, just like the, that some of the sockeye populations we see in in the Georgia Strait and and the Salish Sea here, if those dams were removed those sockeye populations could return to those rivers given the opportunity because those genetics are completely locked up in those kokanee in the upper watersheds right
2: yeah i think that's that well that's the analogy i've been tossing over in my head ever since you kind of been drawing those analogies who do you look up to as far as uh, whether it's fly fishing or whether it's steelhead whether it's you know i
1: got to say like there's a couple of different people that have had influences here in BC over time. Some of them I've met, some of them I haven't. Um, and, uh, and they've been just more literary and, 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 you know, but, uh, you know, Randy Pascal's the cutthroat guru. I don't think anybody can disagree with that. He, uh, you know, he, he definitely is uh, on, on an, in, him and, and Deb both are on a huge influencer list for me because, uh, you know, they're both amazing fly tires and just the knowledge that they carry for the lower drainages. There is just, it's just unprecedented in, in today, you know, like just moving around and spending the time and, and, and lovely people. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I gotta give it out to Artlinger, uh, who, who's been years and years. I've just read his books and, and, uh, what a lovely man. I just, I got an opportunity, you know, we fished together this fall and, and, uh, I got to witness him rise a couple fish to the dry first cast, a couple fish to the dry, which was phenomenal. Cool. Uh, to see and, and, and witness that style and and see him take them on bamboo was amazing. Uh, and, and we did some, uh, some cut zebra cutthroat fishing. Um, and, uh, and definitely has been a huge influence in my fly fishing over the years. Uh, you know, it would have been, would have been, pretty amazing to be born. I think fifty years earlier.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, I think I think every generation says that though. That's a funny thing. <laughs> We're chatting today with Pat Meester. Pat's out of Powell River. A farmer, he's grown a lot of his own food. Sounds like most of it, uh, if not all of it. All of it, or are you still buying some stuff at the grocery store?
1: No, we, um, you know, I got to say, you know, we took part in the farming community here for a a long time um, and and produced uh, food in the community. We did uh, a couple of types of uh, heritage hog, you
2: -hmm. know,
1: large black in Berkshire. And we did. Uh, I did blue slate turkeys, which I found was very. Uh, they would just go and kind of lay on the farm. I could let the females out in, in the spring once they were bred, and uh, and and they would just go and produce babies in in the bushes. And uh, we did meat birds and egg layers. Uh, but we did. Uh, we were focused on. Uh, we live in a very remote area here, when the Coast Mountains start to push towards the ocean after um, the fjords, North Squamish, being you know, uh, Jervis Inlet and, and, and the Peninsula, Seashell Peninsula, mm-hmm. you, you start to, the Coast Mountains come to the sea, so there's not a lot of land here. So it's very hard to produce uh, any kind of beef. We did a, a, a Dexter cattle, so we did, uh, a, uh, for a while, I got rid right of Dexters. They were a small Irish breed that lived on a, almost like a goat, but they produced a really, really nice beef. Hmm. And uh, we did Scottish Highland, the, the long-haired Scottish cows with large horns you see, uh, we, you know, here in Power River. So we yeah. were trying to focus on sustainable food here in the coast, right?
2: Cool. And obviously Pat also is an avid, avid fly fisher and basically chases fish all over the place. And we're talking from cutthroat to rainbows to steelhead to salmon and everything in between. Um, tell me a little bit about the kokanee fishery you've got in your neck of the woods. I don't want to give away too many secrets, but I, I, it strikes me as odd because a lot of those fish, do they actually have a choice? They could go to the ocean if they wanted, but they just don't.
1: No, no, we, we have, we are two watersheds here on the peninsula. We're dammed. Okay. So we, we, uh, the, 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 uh, and the, the populations of what what you would call a, um, they're found in a few different uh, watersheds actually in the lower mainland as well, but um, they're called black kokanee. They're deep water spawning kokanee. Hmm. Those were generally, those were kind of happened um, from what I understand from the last ice age. So 10,000 years ago, when we had the ice age, we get some sockeye populations that are cut off uh, and, and you have this, this, this heaving of land and then you have fry that are trapped behind a barrier or ice barrier and they evolve to be in the watersheds themselves and never go to sea. Hmm. And then you have populations throughout the Salish Sea that are created by dams which are that are populated by man. So you've taken man's gone and taken a sockeye run and created a dam and now you have kokanee populations right. behind there. Uh, here we have both. But the kokanee that we're talking about here, they're not—they're um, not a target fishery. Hmm. They're like a herring or a smelt. <laughs> they're the—they're the food fish. This is similar, you know. We're talking similar to, uh, like the Kootenai Gerard, right? Yeah. Where you—you yeah. you know, you're finding fish that are eating those fish.
2: Well, that's the same with uh, Okanagan Lake where I'm at, and and you—you you got me thinking about a few things tonight for some reason because you're talking about. Um, deep spawning kokanee so we've got kokanee that you know ever since the damming on the columbia and whatnot they don't find their way to the ocean although now there's they're kind of working on that and there is actually sockeye coming back but the the landlocked fish seem to evolve into a certain percentage of shore spawners and i don't know if that's just like is that your experience with the kokanee that you're fishing for? Some of them, like you call them deep water spawners. I've never heard that term, but to me, is that is that what you mean by shore spawning kokanee versus something that would go to a creek and spawn? Uh,
1: okay, yeah. Well, if you want to, uh, we can we can definitely talk kokanee. I gotta reiterate though, we don't fish. I don't fish kokanee ever. Oh, we never fish. We never fish kokanee. We fish kokanee patterns.
2: <laughs> right. So you're fishing for the sand. What are you fish? What are you fishing for? Large rainbows that are feeding on those kokanee.
1: We're fishing for coastal cutthroat that have evolved to eat those fish.
2: How big do these so cutties fishing. get? Roughly.
1: Uh, I think the largest fish that we took this year was about nine and a half pounds. Wow,
2: that's I didn't realize actually. coastal well, cutties get they
1: took. I say fool. I should say fooled because fooled. you
2: know fool fool and release all
1: of our all of our fish are protected yeah
2: yeah wow so now so the are you using fry patterns for the most part or are you using like adult kokanee patterns
1: well we use anywhere from looking you know uh two two and a half inch stickleback patterns to uh you know really heavy sculpting and and, and you know muddler patterns
2: hmm. uh
1: up to uh, five-inch and four-and-a-half-inch streamers, rabbit streamers, right?
2: Hmm. So is this a lot of estuary stuff, or is this a lot of kind of um, rivers or kind of all of the above?
1: Well, most of the population here are, are lake fish. I mean, everything's so steep that we... Okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're, there's very little room for uh, colonization of rivers, uh, you know either the fish the fish that have colonized the rivers as far as they can generally uh, up to the ad fluvial barrier would be you know your pacific salmon in all of the barriers that they can achieve you know from pink to chum to chinook to coho right. to summer coho summer steelhead and sea wren cutthroat <laughs> and bull trout, and then that's it those fish populate the lakes and 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 that's the end of it right they don't really uh you know so they, they the 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 fish that are here uh, on the peninsula that we target throughout the winter um you know are kokanee and sculpin and stickleback feeders and and they're a little bit more unique because just because of the large lake presence uh you know below the coast mountains i mm-hmm. think once you start to get down into the olympic peninsula the reach of coastal cutthroat goes so much further inland because you don't have any obstructions for sometimes hundreds of kilometers once you hit the op right yeah so uh, and then they have populated some of the lakes but then there's huge docking programs down there and there's rainbows and different species that are in the in the lake so it's kind of uh, and then and then north of here it's just too steep i mean and you know
2: Yeah, so here I'm trying to get a feel for your area because, I mean, you're talking to a guy from the desert here, okay? Um, It's pretty dry where I'm at. So, um, And then in my mind, Powell River's always kind of been an outlier for me because it's not... You're on the mainland, but you're not really that accessible like a lot of people. I mean, it's two ferries to you, is it not? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's it's costly, especially with a boat, so... Uh, you know, uh, and, 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 I mean, the, the, the fisheries here are very, uh, they're seasonal, uh, and they're, they're a lot of it's deep water. So, uh, you know, there's cutthroat populations. I think we're becoming a little more famous for the rainbow population. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we're just, uh, uh, protecting Protecting the uh, the small uh, populations of wild fish that are here as people kind of move into the to the area, and I think it's becoming definitely more popular. People are kind of um, discovering Powell River, and as they do, I mean, uh, people need to understand that it's a it's a wild fishery, and the uh, catch and release, single barbless rules are are strictly enforced uh, in a lot of the watersheds here. Right?
2: Yeah, good stuff. Um, let's talk seals. How big of an issue are seals in your neck of the woods for, for whether it's, well, I guess they're probably not feeding on fry too much, but those fish as they start heading out to sea. Is that, um, I know that you're kind of famous in that Harbor.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, uh, I, you know, to be honest, I think, um, seals become less of an issue with long distance runner. Like they're more of an issue with long distance runner fish, less of an issue with velocity barrier fish. And once we start to move north of the Squamish all the way up, I mean, to some of the larger watersheds in the north. Right. Uh, I'm sure, I, there's, sure, there's exceptions at watersheds along the way where fish build up. But um, generally, fish move in. They move into the system. The seals have no access to the system if they do it's a very low end canyon uh, part of the watershed where it becomes a problem here is with i think i'm i, I, I don't want to be a, you know political but i've i'm a believer in, in in the change in our environment and i and i physically you know see over seasons and seasons i i think this year is a very normal year we were talking about that mm-hmm. earlier and yeah as a steel fisherman uh, who used to go to vancouver island and set up camp for the first two uh two, the last two weeks of July every year um i would watch it. it would rain right up to when we left it would rain right up to you know the the 10 days before we left it was a matter of did it did it stop july 1st or did it stop july 8th you know yeah. is what it came down to and we would go and set up on different rivers and and explore different places and i i just um i think this is a very normal year yeah, I think uh, the last uh, 10 years has been quite an anomaly, and we've seen fires, and, yeah. you know, I I, f- I look at you guys in the interior, man, and I just, my heart goes out to you guys and everything that's happened there, because I just can't, we, we're so much, da- we're just damper, right, yeah. on the coast, it's a different <laughs>
2: Well, well, you're talking like somebody that's experienced it for a while because I feel the same way. Everyone's always like, you know, this is such a cold year. Well, yeah, in the past, like you said, past 5, 10 years it is. But if you go back 30, 40, it's probably not that, you know, unusual. But...
1: Yeah, it's not always going to be global warming. It's going to be global cooling sometimes too, right? And we'll just – the the problem with summer steelhead, if we're chatting about steelhead, yeah. I think uh, what we're seeing is a couple of different – with those three different ones we talked about earlier, you have long distance runners, you have velocity barrier fish, and you have temperature barrier fish. And uh, and basically, the long distance runners, the Skeena fish, the Fraser fish, the Thompson fish, we can basically attribute a lot of their demise, in my opinion, this is just my opinion and my experience, to uh, seals, commercial commercial fisheries being number one bang done uh doesn't matter whether it's a commercial fishery in the ocean or with nets uh in in the river it doesn't matter it's 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 you know the taking of fish on a large scale for human consumption is from from way out because i think they're intercepted with sockeye i think they're i think they live with sockeye i think their migration pattern goes with sockeye and coho and they come back with historic runs of those fish that have always been taken for food Mm. and i think that they're a bycatch fishery and i think think that that's a huge demise and i think there's a few you know bob and a few guys really kind of bring to light the the the, the numbers on what's happening in a lot of these long distance runner systems right when it Mm. comes to velocity barrier fish you're looking at a whole different global warming issue because now what's happened for the last 10 years is we've seen we've seen fish that are not achieving their barrier so these this is this is coming right with discussions with top steelhead biologists in the province that I work with okay like we're talking about fish that can't make their achieve their barrier because the snows melted before they get there they're stuck below the waterfall So they get stuck below the waterfall and then you have winter fish that get up to that space and then they all crossbreed at the same Uh, time in the same space. And you're not getting the genetics above the velocity barrier to achieve that pure genetic of the fish that achieve that waterfall in June, July and stay separate from the later fish that come up to that barrier. This is a huge problem for summer runs because they'll become uh, extinct. They'll become... Uh, you know it's just the natural evolution you can't argue with it if they can't make the barrier they're not going to make the barrier evolution in the watershed completely dictate the, st- the species of fish that we have so it's our impact through the deforestation of the upper watershed and the temperature rise that's going to melt that water quicker so the fish can achieve the barrier and if they can't they're going to disappear and if the, then the winter runs can't make their space, then they're going to disappear. But you got to remember this. We had this discussion the other day, and he reminded me this. Steelhead have disappeared twice from British Columbia waters completely and been pushed out to the ocean by two different ice ages and come back to populate everything that we knew when it was hammer time in the hmm. 50s and 60s, right? and the turn of the century so you know steelhead as a a rainbow trout the red band rainbow or coastal rainbow as a species is a resilient fish that'll be here long after man if we don't totally mess up the planet but it's where they they've been pushed back to california and mexico through ice shields but this is something i've been i'm writing a book and this is something that i was just discussing with a couple of biologists the other day was my philosophy is I got a couple of different things that I'm working on as far as those fish we talked about in Oregon those fish in northern Oregon and California and up to the Columbia Basin have a different migratory pattern the last ice age there was actually exposed land on northern Vancouver Island and the Haida Gwaii Hmm. were both clear and portions of the upper Columbia. So there was populations of rainbows that got wiped out. Everything got wiped out by an ice age, but there was places where they could spawn. So there was genetics deposited on North Vancouver Island, Haida Gwaii, and up the Columbia River. Is Is it a coincidence that we have these populations of fish that come out of the Columbia River north, that all migrate up the same way up to the Pacific pasture and over to Rushton have evolved to have this big migratory pattern. And then the ice shield came right down to Northern California. So we, I clearly see that over two different ice ages, we had one population that was pushed all the way down. And then we had some genetics that were deposited in these small places. And those fish have, Basically, come back over ten thousand years and populated everything we know today. So you got to have faith in the fish. <sighs> you got to have faith in the species, right? They're gonna come back.
2: I, even I, if I even love the way. Back I never heard it verbalized like that. That's um, and I've never heard.
1: It's, it's the way it happened, you know. Like I mean,
2: but the way you're talking about um, kind of three. I don't know if you want to call them categories of steelhead, but the way you're talking about long distance runners, velocity barrier fish, and what was the other one? Temperature?
1: Well, they'd be a temperature barrier fish. There's a there's a right. term for it. I can't remember actually right now, but there, I mean, you're talking about fish that come from, when you look at the territory from Northern Vancouver Island to up to the Nass and to the Dean.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: you're looking at a huge portion of Ghost. How many famous steelhead runs do you know between there?
2: Well, I don't uh, personally know a lot, but I know there's a lot of them. <laughs> Isn't, yeah. well,
1: there's, there's, there's a lot of like historic runs. There's good runs, I'm sure. Okay. There's a lot of population. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of different populations and families of anadromous rainbow between here and there. Right. But it's the it's the sheer steepness of the of the territory and the uh, watersheds. I
2: see where you're going. That
1: actually expects them to have like when you go when you go back in history and you look at the populations of all the inlets north of of here and you go all the way up. They all hold. I mean, we used to have a caretaker on every watershed, counting salmon, counting steelhead, counting sea run cutthroat. Back in the '60s and '50s. We had a guy that lived there in a boat and counted these fish. We mm-hmm. can't we have no idea what happened after that ended in the seventies, man. We have no clue as to populations. We just guess. And I, I go into some of these places and some of them are good and some of them are just gone. But the but the thing is, you can't say they're gone because they use these small watersheds for such a short period of time in these very steep environments mm-hmm. that got to have faith that those genetics are still deposited everywhere right there's steelhead that come in and spawn in rivers that I've taken broodstock from in my career that are in the river for less than a week they they are spawned completely out and you would swear you're catching a summer run steelhead coming into the river mm. to spawn a year later but instead it's a fish that is it's leaving to the ocean it's already spawned it comes in and drops its eggs and leaves within three to five days. Wow. And it does that. And that's what that's what I call a stop and drop fish. They come into the river, the low end. They drop their eggs at the lowest barrier. They're fully mature. Their eggs are almost loose. They come in usually late April, May, June. Hmm. Sometimes they spawn even into July. And there's overlapping summer and winter steelhead runs. Right? But those fish are... Uh, small populations and they're not target populations. We're not, you know, we're just trying to identify them and, and see that they're there, but they're, and that's kind of, it's a good hope for the species because as much as, uh, some of the larger runs that are historic or disappearing, some of these small populations, they're diverse yeah, and separated and they're small families. And there's, there's 25 fish, 30 fish, but they've been the same since the fifties. Right. Same amount, of right.
2: There's,
1: there's two dozen spawning parent and, and that's it.
2: Isn't Ever. nature just boggles. It boggles my mind when, when I hear it put like that, cause it shows you how the fish do adapt. Uh, you know, they can only adapt so quickly. That's the thing is we can screw things up in a hurry, but you know what I mean? Like you say, if there's a, just a few fish can probably, um, you know, if they aren't messed with too much, could somehow find a way to bounce back between those different types of spawners. Like, you, I, that would be a fairly genetically strong fish, and, or not genetically strong, but you would think that, that those ones you're talking about that come into the system, spawn at the first barrier, get back, get get done with their business, go back to the ocean, and those fish are going to do it again, right? Um, that's yeah, got to be they're, good.
1: they're the least beat on, Oh, sorry. No, <laughs> swear. they're the least beat on. They're the least. They have the least opportunity to be killed by seals. They have the least opportunity to be killed by fishermen or bears or eagles or have any interaction with anything negative. They're the ones that are probably gonna be the last genetics. Hmm. Summer steelhead are actually holding their own when it comes to winter fish. In a lot of the velocity barrier situations, and I don't know why, I, 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 I don't know if it's a commercial fishery thing, but when you look at some of the populations on Vancouver Island and, and on the coast, um, everything is on a downturn. Everything's collapsing. But as it does, um, is it because summer runs aren't in the ocean for that long? I mean, are they're, they're a, a lot of the summer runs are a biannual spawner, right? I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize that, is that winter runs can, I mean, a stop and drop fish, like you said, is going to return more because it just comes in, drops its eggs and it goes and spends another 10 months at sea or 12, 11 months at sea. And it has this life in the ocean where it's bountiful and full of food and its chances of being intercepted are very low. Mm-hmm. Whereas like summer steelhead comes in and, in June, July, gets into up above the velocity barrier, sits there for the whole winter, spawns the next year in May, goes back to the ocean, and then spends an entire year in the ocean before it comes back to the river to spawn again. Hmm. But what we're actually seeing now through some of this collection and some of the studies is that a lot of these fish are actually spending more time in the freshwater than we thought before so you're seeing summer runs that are you're catching in August that have actually spawned in May or, or April and are staying in the fresh water to eat the you know the summertime bounty right the the stones and the
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the caddis and the actually very very cannibalistic we, we've been you know, seeing a lot of cannibalism, and that goes to natural selection. And some of the, this is an interesting one, is some of the highest populations that you see that are wild and uninfluenced are the most cannibalistic. So selection of the weakest, right? And I think some of those smolts that are going to see after having to live with two years of adults coming in and feeding on them are probably more primed to stay away from lingcod and rock cod and everything else in the ocean yeah. as they grow than anything else. Right. It's I mean, like a, it's exactly.
2: a tough childhood.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they like, honestly, some of the, the greater populations that we're seeing are very cannibalistic. So they're, 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 they're feeding on the weak as adults. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Interesting. So when you're fishing for these, uh, steelhead and you alluded to the fact that you're, you like to kind of fish the top water. Are you fishing a floating line for the most part?
1: Yeah, I fish a floating line.
2: And then you're fishing like deer hair. What what did you call them? Bees, steelhead bees.
1: Yeah. I mean, a haggy brown steelhead bee or a little yellow bug.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, last year I made a post there, um, you know, Art's um, woolly bear there was just a phenomenal bomber, uh, unbelievable uh, hmm. to witness him. You know, we basically—I mean, I—I I, I couldn't believe it. We walked up, and there was—you know—we're on a a three hundred foot run, and uh, he popped out a, a cast on a bamboo rod with his woolly bear and rose a fish first cast, and and I couldn't believe it. I was, <clears throat> I was, I turned. To brad and i said he just froze a fish and and brad was putting down the backpack and he said what and and he and next one through and boom there it was right and well wow. a, a small half pounder it was beautiful to watch him play in london and what an honor right i mean and then uh, the next run down uh he switched to a uh a, a grantham's uh sedge i think it was and uh yeah and and rose a fish there. I had posted a video there and, and uh, rose a fish and, and landed a beautiful fish on that bamboo. It was just phenomenal, right? So uh, uh, that was a, uh, you know, I, I think uh, all of those patterns, anything kind of summertime, uh, I think working the water with a dry and having the opportunity to rise a fish is worth so much more than than pounding through and just trying to locate a fish. I mean, we have patterns that... I could toss into the pool and instantly first cast, you know, you're going to get a fish, but that's a young man's game. I think, uh, I, I really, I really enjoy just bringing a fish to the surface these days. Right.
2: Hmm. So back in the day, did you do a lot of wet fly swing kind of stuff or is that not kind of in your wheelhouse anymore?
1: Oh no, I like to fish wets, but I still fish them on a dry line. Now I mean it's um nice. I used to fish a lot of streamers and uh, you know, I, I I was a pin fisherman when I was younger. I fished both. I was a very Barry, Barry Thornton uh you know, type uh, a follower where, you know, you carried both on the on the gold and you carried both on the big rivers, right? You had you had waters that were considered like unfishable on the fly, right? But uh, you know uh, these days, I just, I'd walk over those waters because there's just places, I just think as you grow older, you just come up with so many waters that are fly waters that you just, you don't have the time. It yeah. just comes down to a matter of time, right? So I, I would, I just, there's so many places that I can go and try and rise a fish to a fly. I, I don't fish the pin anymore, but um, uh, I do fish wet flies. I fish them on a dry line. I, I like a tapered leader on a, on a, on a long belly line. And I just, I, I think a double taper, uh, uh, or a long belly, uh, that's the way to, to, to fish a, a small to medium river. Uh, I'm not a big water fisherman, so I don't fish.
2: Right. Yeah. I, got I just
1: don't, I don't fish big waters, right? Yeah. I don't, uh, yeah, there's not, uh, hmm. uh there's not any in my community. I mean, the, you're, you know, you're talking about, uh 10, 10 15 meter rivers that's that's some of the larger waters that we
2: yeah. fish right so yeah i feel that um i want you to put your artist hat on paint me a picture of your dream day so i assume it's steelheading but if you could kind of you know create the background for us create the you know who you're fishing with are you on your own um what type of water you fishing kind of patterns you throw on. Paint us a little picture of your dream day on the on the water.
1: Oh definitely my dream day is summer steelhead fishing. Uh you know, shorts, long sleeve shirt, one box of flies, a couple things a liter in the pockets, you know, uh you know, doing putting on the kilometers, right? Stand light. And, uh, walking small streams, I guess that I kind of like grew up fishing on the island and, and rivers I grew up fishing on the island and on the coast here, man, for summer runs and, uh, fishing with a friend for sure, or multiple, you know, I don't mind fishing one or two. I'd like to go last. I think at this point in my life, I really enjoy seeing somebody take a fish with with proper instruction which has led me to you know i I, i've been teaching uh you know single hand here uh for a while and i just i think uh instruction i just i enjoy it the the manipulation of the line the manipulation of where the fly goes and then the, the reward is the fish right i mean that's just the 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 ultimate reward for fishing and reading the water properly
2: yeah and
1: uh and, and in the end, uh, to, to watch a client, uh, rise or, or ca- even just to, to catch a large fish, um, that's it's almost better than me catching a big fish these days. I just, I really
2: do enjoy it, man. So what, what about the meal at the end of the day? Or is there a campfire? What are you cooking up? Are you drinking something special? What's, what's happening there?
1: Oh, I'm a, I'm an ale guy. Uh, I like my beers. At the end of the day, um, I, uh, you know, definitely a, a fire. I'm I'm a wild wild meat. We eat a lot of bear. Mm-hmm. You know, I as a farmer, I eat a lot of pork and beef. Uh, these days, uh, you know, we eat a lot of wild game and uh, and locally produced stuff. Uh, from other young farmers that are kind of taking on the, yeah the land here right
2: and it always amazes me how much bear it reminds me of ham talking about pork but... you is that been your experience or the...
1: oh yeah well I mean the spring bear is a pretty lean animal right so mm. we uh, you know we have a, a small community on the property here and uh, you know we eat a couple of bears a year. And generally, it's you know ground and and uh, and either frozen or canned, cooked and canned. So as you can, you know, where yeah spaghetti tacos Did... or uh, I I I do kill fish. I don't kill wild cutthroat. That's kind of a thing of mine here. Yeah,
2: uh, you I get know, that.
1: I try and uh, I, there's there's places that you can, but uh, 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 you know, cutthroat aren't really a good eating fish in in my opinion.
2: Is there this is going to be kind of a, an odd question, but is, is there anything about fly fishing that kind of gets your goat and kind of makes you go, "What? why are we doing this?
1: Um, well, as I get older, I'm definitely more into um, seeing people have the experience and, and filming. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, in, I enjoy photography and I enjoy filming. Um, I did, I did a little bit of underwater stuff with just simple little cameras that I had a while ago, you know, but I mean, uh, there's definitely some inspirational people out there doing it, but, um, there's something about holding them, right? There's something about being there with that moment and connecting with that fish and having it look at you and do it in a proper way where, you know, um, you know, I struggle with that online uh, with a lot of the sites, as you said earlier. You know, you see me kind of all over the place. I'm on like 180 trout sites across Facebook. Wow. You know, because I, 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 I enjoy seeing, you know, marble trout and white spotted char and and, you know, just different life histories of fish around the world and how brown trout have evolved across Europe and and sea run browns and and steelhead i mean it's all intriguing to me right Mm -hmm. so uh i really enjoy that community connection uh that i get on facebook i'm not a big social media guy as far as personal it's more the 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 trout connection and trout talk with with people and salmon i mean uh, the the atlantic salmon such an amazing species around the world right so it doesn't matter if it's the boys down in New Zealand, catch browns and rainbows or wherever they've been moved. I just think the evolution of it all is very yeah. intriguing, right?
2: You said something earlier that I've been trying to get my head around when you're talking about how surviving two glaci- glaciers or two ice ages and how, I mean, you want to talk about um, bouncing back. Like how, I think uh some of the, those the, kind of the high... Mark high elevation trout streams. Actually, you know, you had me. Be honest with you, you had me thinking about Panask Lake during the ice age. Like, would that have been frozen solid, or would that have been higher? And how how have we yes, never so ha, how have we never stopped that? Those, Stock that. Sorry, well, how some
1: I, of those interior streams they got cut off, right? So you had your Gerards get cut off at a certain point. Yeah. You had your Panask and Horsefly get cut off at a certain point. And get isolated and spend a huge portion of time uh, isolated with their own food source in their own watershed, and then populated a space from there. And I've spent my life looking at the coastal cutthroat, the uh, you know studying and taking DNA for the province from the anadromous central coast family of the sea run boltro family, right, which is different than the ones we know from the kind of the squamish and skagit uh or squamish down and pit down to the skagit that's one family that's the smallest anadromous bull trout family in in the world um the central coast family is very undiscovered and that's the one that we fish in it and 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 you know when it when it comes to all these different uh life histories and strains and species of fish uh that's that's what's kind of like making me look like tick and I'll, that's what I want to see and hmm. learn about. Right. It's not, uh, yeah. Um,
2: so what's the, is there an end game you, as far as like maybe coming up with a book at some point? I know you kind of alluded to, you might be working on something there. Like, is there's like, I know you do a lot of research and I know it's to better your knowledge and understand fisheries and whatnot, but, like, do you ever think of putting some of this in recorded form?
1: Yeah, definitely. A friend of mine gave me a computer a little while ago that I've been working with. I've just uh, been putting stuff down chapter by chapter of the things that I've learned. And, um, and uh, you know, whether it goes to print or not, at least it's down there because it's kind of uh, a lot of it's undiscovered uh uh, territory, both as we grow in technology and as we grow out into areas that we are very like uh, under uh, sampled and under discovered, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's huge portions of British Columbia that are, um, you know, we have no idea the effect that's, that we're having on it. We have no idea the populations there. And, uh, you know, with new science and new sampling, we can kind of get an understanding of the populations and their life history. And I think that's an important aspect to protecting them as we find them, especially since we're getting into areas of very small populations. Mm. You know, you can't can't have guys pounding over uh, 25 uh, steelhead in a river that's a kilometer long. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's not going to, uh, you know, so there's populations where we can actually use for sport fishing. There's populations that we need for depositing genetics for
2: the future, mm. right? It's, it's just it's, sustainability seems to be kind of the common theme you're always coming back to, right? And I like the fact, I actually really find it, it's rare that I have somebody on the show that feels so strongly conservation-wise, but also... Believes in harvest. You know what I mean. Like to me, I get both sides, and I I love where you're going with that. I think there's certain fisheries that if the numbers are great, um, fine, have at her, take the odd fish. But um, you know, if you're talking about these gems of a system that are on their last legs, I mean, we're even. Let's put it this way: even if you can fish some of those, do you want to be?
1: That's right. I mean, there's certain there's certain places where you know. I mean, we really need to just understand what's happening and be able to uh, they need to be able to make closures and have those closures respected uh, for populations before they're gone. And I think that's an important aspect moving into the future Mm -hmm. where you are, uh, where, where the lower mainland or on the coast or the North coast, it doesn't matter Vancouver Island. I mean, people need to respect the fact that when the populations get that low, you know, it's important to keep the genetic pool. It's very important. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's uh, moving forward. I think we're going to see more of that as, as environmental, uh, changes dictate populations. Right.
2: I love it. Well, I think you and I are going to have to have a few of these conversations because we got so many rabbit holes we can go down to, but I, I first off want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy and, um, maybe tell us a little bit. So with your guiding this season, it sounds like you're already fairly busy. Busy coming up. If somebody wants to book a trip with you, how, how do they reach you? What's the best way?
1: Uh, yeah, basically. I mean, you can look me up on Facebook at uh, Pat Pat Demister, um, and uh, send me a private message. Uh, you know, we're, I'm looking at. Uh, uh, I have a few openings between now and December, and then uh, moving into the new year. I don't. I I just with the the way the world has been i'm I'm gonna be staying about uh, you know four or five months booking four or five months in advance type thing, but uh, right. you know, I mean, if people are interested, uh, I, I i'm I'm more interested in introducing people to different life histories of fish. so basically if if people are interested in seeing um, you know a, 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 an anadromous uh, cutthroat, coastal cutthroat, and they would like to catch a beautiful. Uh, anadromous sea run coastal cutthroat or they would like to catch a large ad fluvial lake fish that's feeding on kokanee or they would like to catch a sea run bull trout or a summer steelhead on a dry fly these are some of the the unique fisheries that you know i'm going to offer in small scale uh, throughout the season and uh you know hmm. people can reach out to me there on
2: facebook yeah i love it i love what you're up to so much integrity and passion and uh, always you know seems like you're sh- you're willing to share your knowledge and and that's pretty cool um, thanks for doing this and don't hang up cuz i want to ask you another question before the end of the show but thanks for doing this pat yeah man we've been cha- we've Great been try. We've been chatting with Pat DeMeester out of uh, Powell River, British Columbia, Canada. He is on his farm there. He does lots of fishing for steelhead, cutthroat, whatnot, has a guiding business. Look him up on Facebook at Pat, Pat DeMeester. Thanks for joining us this time around.
0: The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.